It is me, George G. We've got another awesome episode of the Aligned Money Show coming your way featuring Mark Hebner. Mark is the founder and CEO of Index Fund Advisors. They are one of the world's preeminent, biggest, most successful uh, financial firms. Mark is an author of the book, Index Funds, the 12-step recovery program for active investors. He is a speaker, a thought leader, and lots of other wonderful things. Um, I think you're really going to enjoy the conversation that we had about indexing, a little bit of the history, um, the difference between, between passive investing and active investing, and how the industry has changed, but specifically how individuals, regular folks like you and I can position ourselves for success with investing and reaching our financial goals and priorities. We had a fun game of two truths and a lie, and he shared an awesome difference-making tip. In fact, a couple of them at the end, so I just know that you're going to love it. Let's go. Mark, to get us started, give me two truths and a lie, please. Well, George, I've been thinking about my two truths and a lie, and I hopefully came up with some good ones for you. The first one is I think the prices of all stocks are fairly, fairly priced all the time. So basically all stocks are fairly priced all the time. Uh, I also believe that if I worked really hard and studied for hours about each individual stock that I bought or sold, that I could do better or beat the market. And lastly, I assume that the returns that I earn from stocks are explained by the risk of the stock rather than my speculating on them. Those are excellent, solid, and certainly germane to your work, I believe, sir. I'm going to say the lie is the second one that you thought that you could beat the market or, or, or get a better return based on your studies. Ding, 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 ding. Yes, sir. You won. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I appreciate it, sir. Okay. Yeah. I love it. No problem. So Those are I, all really important points for investors, and I hope uh, they get it. Was that hard one knowledge for you? It was very hard one knowledge. Um, in fact, uh, 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 one of the firms we work with, Dimensional Fund Advisors, that was covered in the book Trillions that I know you did an interview on, talks about this firm, Dimensional Fund Advisors. They just completed a documentary film. And in that film, I'm interviewed and I talk about the fact that I had a 14 or 13 year period where I did not understand indexing. And I had invested the uh, windfall from the sale of a publicly traded firm that I was the CEO of. And because of my lack of understanding of those principles, uh, it cost me about $30 million. How's that <laughs> for, for a good lesson? <laughs> and uh, that what's, that's what led me uh, to the creation of this uh, business and my book about index funds. Do you ever wonder? You know, I could have gotten the uh, could have gotten the idea from just a million dollar mistake. Why did it have to be thirty? I know. Believe me. Uh, do we have to go on talking about it? No. We, we absolutely do not. <laughs> it's uh, it's really quite amazing, and I think it's quite a familiar story and similar to 
uh, many uh, high net worth, high asset investors. Is it possible to beat the market? Only by chance. And, and by chance, uh, it happens quite a bit. And we take those uh, by chance winners and then put them on a pedestal as if they're some kind of genius. And instead of even thinking about the idea that maybe this just occurred out of luck and uh, it had nothing to do with a skill that they had. And there is a way, a, a statistical uh, measurement that's used. It's called a T-statistic that takes a look at the data and it looks at how big uh, the extra extra return is, they're what we call their alpha, how much that alpha varies and how large your sample size is. And you put it in your little formula. And if you get a T-statistic of two or greater, then maybe there is a systematic uh, method that they're using that might be considered skill, okay? But uh, over, I don't know, 20 years, we find maybe one investor that appeared to have a systematic skill and everybody else was just lucky or underperformed the market. How long has indexing stocks been 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 around? So the earliest time was the early 70s, probably 71, 72 at Wells Fargo Bank in San Francisco. And then there was another uh, S&P 500. These are both S&P 500 funds that was started in Chicago at American National Bank. So those were the first two, and they were both institutional. Uh, Jack Bogle came along and decided he wanted to create one for individual investors, and that didn't happen until I think it was late December of 1975, and we really didn't see it till 76, and it was a big failure. In fact, they called it Bogle's Folly mm. in the beginning. It took quite a while for people to catch on uh, to uh, what he was trying to do with that and why it made sense. And now what percentage do you think has caught on? Because I imagine there's still a lot of folks who are actively investing in active mutual funds. So the latest numbers are about half of uh, mutual funds and ETFs. Those are both funds, by the way. One's mutual, one's exchange traded. The big difference is you can trade all day long in your exchange traded fund. Uh, about half of them are what we would call passively managed uh, ETFs or mutual funds. Uh, which are like index funds. There's there's a uh, it, it's kind of a gray zone now from what we call the traditional index funds to what are non-traditional index funds. They're based on risk factors and all those kind of things, and and various screens like environmental index funds and social index funds, all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, but the problem is, uh, I don't know the percentages, but most of those. Uh, ETFs in particular are traded like wildfire. And so uh, having a passive fund is the first step, but passively owning that fund is the second step. And you have to do both of those to position yourself to capture the returns that the market has earned. Does that make sense? Are we confused by that? <laughs> Mildly, when you say most are traded like wildfire, what do you mean? So the of the top 10 traded securities uh, recently, I think three of them were, were S&P 500 exchange traded funds. It's treated as a security. So people are buying and selling these all day long. So it's not the buy and hold philosophy 
that was originally established in the 70s by uh, Wells Fargo. David Booth was at Wells Fargo. American, American National Bank was Rex Sinkfield and Jack Bogle. Those were all designed as a buy and hold index uh, fund, not something that should be traded you know, throughout the day. It goes back to that first uh, principle I gave you is that the prices of stocks are fair. Basically, most traders are trading under the assumption that a stock is not fairly priced. It's overvalued. Oh, we better get out. It's undervalued. We better back up the truck and you know buy a bunch of that stock. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, in a market like we have all around the world, some 40 exchanges around the world, uh, 10 million traders trading 100 billion shares a day, uh, you actually uh, arrive at a near perfect price. Nobody knows actually what that perfect price is. But what we do know is that we've included all the information and forecasts of all these buyers and sellers, roughly 10 million of them all over the world, and basically embedded that and, and collected all that information, and it's literally quantified as the price. So that three <laughs> passive funds, passive index funds, are being actively traded. Yes. Does, does, does that make you just kind of lose your mind and be like, you're doing it wrong? It does, as a matter of fact, and we do everything we can. In fact, the, the subtitle title to my book is the 12-step recovery program mm. for active investors. What these people are doing is they're basically gambling like a gambler in the casino, um, thinking that they have some sense of you know what they should do next, when in fact, uh, new information basically comes to us randomly. So the prices are changing in a random fashion, and there's no way for them to know what that next news story will be. Uh, that's not already predicted in the price, by the way. There's already a probability of that future news story, right? That's embedded, embedded into the price. And so um, there's just no uh, uh, likely way that they're going to uh, end up uh, buying the securities that are going to benefit from this forecast or prediction that they have. And in fact, uh, Jason Swag calls it the prediction addiction. And people are basically addicted to wanting to predict and then place a bet on that prediction. And so this leads to uh, Gamblers Anonymous, uh, where they actually have a program for uh, stock market traders uh, to help uh, deal with their addiction. So I'm not saying everybody's addicted, but there is a mild, it's just like drinking alcohol, okay? Not everybody's addicted to drinking alcohol, but it can get a grip on you pretty easily. <laughs> so you got to be careful. I assume that, and I imagine that you're not, you're not interested in being right or wrong. You're just pointing out what is. Uh. Let's see. I, I'm not sure how to address that. I am interested in being right. What I want to do is I want to. Oh, you mean about the prices or, or about yeah, what? It's it's like there's this, and I don't know if there's a battle raging between active and passive. There probably is, but I imagine when you look at it, you see an orderly market, and you see new information being baked into the price, and that it's doing what it does. And so yeah. who am I to be able to predict what it's going to do? 
Actually, you mentioned the orderly market. This is a little advice that teaches people. Actually, on a day-to-day basis, it looks quite chaotic, okay? But in very large samples, as you collect them, there is order in the chaos. Uh, This is uh, Francis Galton's Galton board. And the whole point of this is what appears to be chaotic and and all random and mixed up uh, in large samples actually looks a lot like a bell curve. And there are probabilities that are reasonably set to for investors to estimate what might happen over literally any uh, return. There's a probability, for example, that you know 20% will fall within this range. And there, to have an extreme outcome of minus 15 or plus 15 in a month uh, is very, very unlikely. And so there are probabilities tied to this uh, chaos uh, as to what it will realize in terms of returns. And over long periods, when you collect enough of them, they tend to look a lot like a bell curve. And I would I'd ask you to sort of refine my statement that I'm about to make here, kind of sand right. off the uh, rough edges that your work is designed to help investors of all shapes and sizes accumulate and invest for their future objectives, whatever that those might be in an optimal way. That's very well stated. Actually, I'm not going to uh, try to correct <laughs> That, that is my goal is uh, they, they call me Professor Hebner uh, because I'm basically like a professor and that I'm teaching them these principles that were mostly developed by academics at, at universities and published in their academic papers. But I take that uh, academic research and try to simplify it, summarize it, and even put art and video and devices to it, like I just showed you. And, you know, I covered it in my book, Index Funds. And so um, I really think of that as really part of my mission really in life is to boil down and simplify that information so it will improve investors' returns over the long haul. But before, well, you're going to ask me, I think, uh, to talk about a little summary here in a minute. I'm not going to jump into that. Oh, wait. <laughs> yeah, I, I I appreciate that. So it's it's an addiction. It's a desire to outsmart. It's so it's ego. What is when the evidence is the kind of the verdict is in? Warren Buffett made that million dollar bet. Uh, it said I nobody can beat can 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 beat the market over the course of whatever it was 10 years and and nobody took them up and then finally one person did and that person finally gave up after a couple of years so it seems like the verdict is in so why are do we keep trying well like you said just like all addictive activities there is an enticement uh and there's an appearance that maybe it's benefiting other people. I don't know, to talk about gambling. Look at they're having all this fun, uh, betting on uh, Tesla, you know, betting on these stocks. And look, they made all this money, but they haven't properly analyzed you know, all of those bets and taken a long-term analysis of what that individual has done. And you know, when, when you hear about gamblers in Vegas, uh, they don't often go bragging about all the money they lost when they come back from their trip. <laughs> They're usually telling you when they made money. And so, uh, but 
It's not entirely correct to say that nobody can beat the market. Out of luck alone, we're going to find somebody among 10,000 investors who get this wonderful return. And so this has been, so I would call sort of the last piece of the puzzle of unraveling this active versus passive is to attribute luck to the past winners. And that's a tough one for people to accept because that individual who did really well looks and speaks so eloquently about this uh, uh, method that they used to get this outsized return. What do you think about risk? So risk is really the reason we get returns. Uh, I'd like to compare it to what people have to pay for their mortgage. You start with your credit score and you go to the bank and you want to get a mortgage. And let's say your credit's really bad and you're you're kind of begging the bank for a mortgage. Well, what are you going to have to pay? You're going to have to pay 13% or some crazy high number relative to somebody else who makes a very high income, has a lot of assets. And today they might get out, get away with 7% on their mortgage. Okay. So the differences between those, we think of the cost of capital of those two mortgage seekers. Okay. Uh, and, and that is tied to the risk of them being able to pay that mortgage, right? Somebody with a lower income and a bad credit score, yeah, there's a higher chance they won't be able to pay it. So the bank needs to get a higher rate of return to compensate for those who will not be able to pay. Same thing is going on in the market. Securities are priced for their risk. And so if you've got a publicly traded dry cleaner in Thailand that wants to get, uh, get capital from a U.S. investor through an emerging market, you know, a fund or whatever, um, that is a very high level of risk. And there's an economic uh, phrase that's called the required rate of return. The required rate of return for an investor in a risky asset is higher. And that means they have to be, they have to force the price down to position them to get that higher return. So prices basically change so that uh, the expected return of the security stays relatively constant over time. And that expected return is a function and tied to the risk of the investment. Got it. For now, I, I, I guess an, another question would be your thoughts on diversification. Are we talking about, so, when you think about diversification, how are yeah. you thinking about that? So let's get back to risk a second. When you look at one stock, there's an enormous range of outcomes. For listeners out there who understand standard deviation, which is really the width of this bell curve, right? Uh, the ranges of outcomes on one stock might be it went to zero, company went out of business, or maybe it doubled or even tripled its return in one year. So those enormous ranges of outcomes. What you want to do as an investor is reduce the ranges of outcomes of your investments, but keep the expected return about the same. So this is a little hard to understand, but if I looked at all 500 stocks in the S&P 500, they all have what we call an expected return of about 10% a year. 
The difference is if I have one stock, the standard deviation of return is like 35, which is a measure of risk. But if I put all 500 in, in, uh, of them into a portfolio like the S&P 500 index fund, the risk is cut about in half. And the expected return of the whole index fund is still 10%. So this is Harry Markowitz's Nobel Prize from 1952 when he wrote a paper on this. He actually got the Nobel Prize in 1990. He wrote the paper in 1952 which was the year of my birth, which is why it's my destiny to bring this to you. Makes sense. And, <laughs> um, and what he basically said is you can keep the expected return the same, but reduce the ranges of outcomes. And so that is what is known as the only free lunch in investing is this diversification among assets. Now, most investors are going to go, wait a minute, you're crazy. Uh, Tesla doesn't have this same expected return as Coca-Cola. You know, that all lots of questions about that. But over long periods of time, uh, basically all stocks uh, returns are basically tied to their risk, as we just said. Uh, like the mortgagee, right? And so, uh, and those risks have settled out for 95 years now, for large companies anyway, to be about nine and a half, nine point 9.8% return. So that's why you diversify is you want to reduce the range of outcomes of your investments. So you're not stuck primarily with losing a lot of money in your investment. Or should the average investor, should all different kinds of investors be diversified in assets outside of the stock market, real estate, real assets, cryptocurrency, stuff like that? So they don't really need to. Real estate is available through publicly traded real estate investment trusts. You can buy a global that's called a REIT, a global REIT index, and actually be a shareholder in some 400 uh, companies that are in the real estate business. If you decide you're going to go buy a, a condo and, and sell it or, or, or rent it out or whatever it might be, or you know fix it up and sell it, um, you're in the real estate business also. Mm -hmm. uh, the question you should ask yourself is, are you as smart? Do you have uh, financing leverage? Do you have a marketing team and an accounting uh, a CFO? You know, all the things that you see in these big public and trading companies. Are you really positioned to get a better return than they are? Okay. And the answer to that is no. You're, you're kind of like one stock. You have a very wide range of outcomes. And they're like a diversified uh, index fund in a sense in that you get real estate exposure all over the country. So you don't need to uh, buy real estate on, in the private market. You can get it in the public market. Uh, in terms of cryptocurrency, uh, the returns of stocks are tied to the earnings that companies make. Uh, I, I think I heard yesterday there, there was no earnings report on Bitcoin. Just no, I, 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 I haven't seen one. Breaking news. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Bitcoin earned zero again. So unfortunately, it is a commodity. I mean, it's like the dollar bill. You know, you can look at exchanges of currencies all over the world. There are all kinds of crazy stuff that drive these changes in prices, but none of them are the earnings of a company. Literally, the value of a company is the present value of future earnings.
So uh, all of these uh, commodities, uh, whether it be gold, whether it be silver, currencies are not a good, uh, really are not an investment at all because there's no earnings involved there. Even when you go to buy properties, the value of that property is based on the rents, okay? The income that's coming in from the net operating income from the property, the cap rate. So I would stay away from all those. The public markets have pretty, uh, have, I would say, everything that you need to have a really highly diversified portfolio. And you can do it in a very low cost index fund. And you can do it without your involvement. Uh, especially if you hire an investment advisor, uh, we like to say a reasonably priced passive investment advisor. Uh, that's that's what we do. That's my main job. Um, who has this knowledge and can help you and help you avoid making mistakes. There's a lot of mistakes made by investors. Uh, we call it behavioral economics, where uh, their their gambling desires tend to get in the way of being a good buy and hold investor of diversified uh, investments. Well said. Well, Mark, we're ready for that difference-making tip. What do you have for us, sir? Here's my tip. Save between 10 and 15% of the gross salary that you make and start that today. Going forward, you want to save at least 10% of your uh, money that you make and invest it in a index fund or a portfolio of index funds. Secondly, you want to invest, when you buy in those index funds, you want to do it consistent with what we call your risk capacity. It's called risk tolerance. It has a lot of other names, but basically it, it uh, calibrates the risk of your portfolio to how much risk you think you have the capacity to hold. The big question is, are you comfortable with losing half the value in your investment over the next 12 months? Okay. Most people say, no, I don't want that. Well, then you shouldn't have an all stock portfolio. And maybe you're good with losing 30%. Well, okay, let's throw in about 40% bonds, fixed income. So that's important. Then once you set that up, you want to rebalance it probably about once a year. You want to do what's called tax loss harvesting in taxable accounts. That means if a, an index has dropped maybe 10%, you sell it, put in some, put it in something else, the, the proceeds for maybe 30 days, and then put it back to the original investment. And then lastly, as you age, you should lighten up on that risk, much like you see in a target date fund. We call it a glide path for clients. And we just simply drop the equity exposure by 1% a year. So over 10 years, you go from a portfolio, 60% stocks and 40% bonds to a 50-50 portfolio. So save, invest, rebalance, tax loss harvest, and glide path. Well, I think that that is great stuff that definitely gets it. Come on. Mark, <laughs> you're making everything way too easy, way too straightforward. You explained it in a way that makes sense to me, and you've given me actionable steps to follow. I don't, yeah. know. I, 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 I don't know what else anybody can ask of you. Well, the only other thing you can do is to, to justify it all, just take a look at my book. And I have a website, ifa.com. That's indiafrankalpha.com. It actually stands for Index Fund Advisors. And there's a wealth of knowledge. Well, many of the things that we just spoke about are on there, as well as a wealth of data. 
uh, going all the way back to 1928. So people can see the really long-term information about uh, the risk and return of various types of securities. Excellent. Well, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Mark your appreciation. Share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Go to ifa.com and take advantage of all those resources that Mark was just talking about. And I definitely appreciated um, the way that he explains things. This is confusing stuff, but you definitely made it very, very easy. And then pick up your copy of Index Funds, I assume, wherever you buy your books. Yeah, you can buy them on Amazon and... They're just getting into bookstores now. Love it. Well, thank you again, Mark. Thank you, George. That was a lot of fun. Great questions. Finally, friendly (laughs) reminder, there's never going to be anybody more interested in your financial success than you are. So act accordingly.